Hey, Bamboo Boy. You're over three, Linus. You ready to go another round? I hatched ready. Earthbound. Done that already. Sanction. Mm. We're playing the auto antonym game. Words that mean a thing and the opposite of the thing at the same time. I know what auto antonym means. Linus needs to whip one out. Don't choke. He can choke. Oversight. Mm. Mm. Choke on that. Mm. Oh, boom. <laughs> <laughs> Humans. <laughs> Transfer complete. Hello and welcome to Subspace Transmissions, the podcast where two Trek fans step into the arena and tackle the best, worst, weirdest, wildest, and everything in between that Star Trek has to offer. I'm Cam Smith, and joining me on the bridge... This is Tyler Orton singing his own praises. And why is he singing, folks? Because this week we're going to talk about the unsung heroes of Star Trek. Yeah, Kim, these are the characters that I don't think ever really quite got their due. They're kind of like maybe the, the tissue to a certain degree that held a lot of episodes or at least a lot of storylines together. And I think we can dive into maybe like episode ideas that these characters could have seized upon like you know like could they have supported like their own one-off adventure throughout the course of like the entire star trek franchise mm -hmm. right yeah so we love talking about characters on star trek and we so often talk about all the the major ones but it's always fun when we can talk about characters we don't spend a lot of time talking about yeah and it's also just folks that maybe the the fans maybe they take them for granted, you know, like they recognize that they're there, but maybe they're, they forget what it's like when they're not there. And um, maybe you and I will even disagree on like who constitutes an unsung hero versus, you know, a sung hero. Like maybe I'll just kick it off with this because I don't know the answer, but, and it might depend on our own definitions, but do you think a character like Morn is an unsung hero or do you think you know people kind of recognize the function that he served on the show and and the show even recognized and acknowledged that hmm well i guess it really depends on how you define unsung heroes because i mean i feel like morn fits into a certain category that i very much considered when choosing these characters of do they flesh out the fabric of this universe without ever you know getting the spotlight the way the major crew members do on the show. And I think Morn fits really well into that where he does add a lot of color to Quark's bar. You're always looking for him when you, you know, cut to that location and uh, he serves his role. Well, what that role is, well, it's very simple, but he delivers it, you know, with a plum. Well, according to Jadzia, his role is the station hunk. <laughs> That's also true. I mean, he just needed a translucent skull though. <laughs> yes. I'm just curious, though. Look, we do have an episode that centers around Morn. That is, who mourns for Morn. But the funny thing is, I think he only appeared in one scene at the very end. And does that speak to kind of the genius of the character? Or do you think that maybe there is uh, there would have been a further opportunity to actually have him heavily featured, but they somehow cut around any dialogue that he would have had to deliver just to keep that running joke going? I always felt like he ran into sort of the problem a lot of very visual genre characters do. Like, say, like Boba Fett. A lot of the appeal of that character is the mystique around him in the first couple movies he appears in. 
once you keep giving him more and more, you kind of lose that mystique. And I feel like Morn kind of played into that. I mean, obviously they're very different types of character, but Morn is someone who, if he just starts talking, for example, the joke is gone about Morn being talkative all the time. Or if we learn too much about his life, suddenly we're too invested in that character in a way that draws away from kind of the value of just having him on, you know, in Quark's bar. Yeah, what did you picture Morn's voice sounding like in your own head? I mean, I'm very unimaginative, so I just tend to think of kind of the lumbering low voice, but I think that's actually wrong. I think that it's just the easy answer, and I'm sure it would be something completely different, and like a falsetto voice or something. I just always pictured it as very kind of um, refined sort of voice, just because that plays against type, you know? Like, I think that would be kind of fun, you know? And But look, it, leaving it to our imagination, that's way more fun as well. Yeah, like, do you want an episode where Morn is just, like, talking up a storm for the full hour and then cutting yeah. back to the next <laughs> week where he's just sitting in the chair again? Yeah, it, it kind of takes the sheen off, you know, that, that character to a certain degree. Because then you're going to wonder, well, how, okay, now that you already have this character talking in one episode, you kind of broken the running gag. Why doesn't he start chiming in in the rest of the episodes? Mm -hmm. Well, exactly. It kind of ruins yeah. kind of the fabric of that uh, established universe to a certain degree. Yeah, he's a supporting character that deserves to be a supporting character just by creation alone. Like, he's not, uh, he's a character who's a visual more so. Well, I, I don't want to make this the whole, you know, Deep Space Nine episode, you know, of Unsung Heroes. I've got a couple other Deep Space Nine characters I want to get to, but I'm going to jump over to another series, Cam. And uh, this is a character who I think got about as much dialogue as Morn did throughout uh, his uh, run. And no, I'm not talking about Travis Mayweather. I am speaking, of course, of Chef. This is the character that everyone is talking about, what, like maybe 10 times every season, Chef gets a mention. Uh, people love his food, people hate his food, uh, you go to Chef to talk about your problems. We just never see the guy, and I think that's part of the genius of, he's like the Maris of the ship, you know, like the uh, the character from Frasier who was married to Niles and we just never saw, we just saw, you know, described on screen. Should they have played Chef up even more on the show that this was a character we were never going to see? In that, like, he's just getting up to wackier and wackier things that, uh, like, because I think our imagination can um, be so much more creative than when you actually see something realized on screen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I just wonder if the whole concept of Chef being this invisible character really even occurred to a lot of people first time through the show. Um, whereas if you had maybe characters be like, oh, I was playing racquetball with Chef this morning or something like that, you would kind of build up a little bit of that mystique of the character in a way that kind of grabs the attention of the viewer. Do you know, I think that the one gag that they're missing, though, is, you know, you just see a, a plate layout being set in front of Archer. You don't see the arm reaching down to deliver it, but then you just hear Archer say, thank you, chef. And like, it's like those things could have kind of escalated in a fun way. Those little gags that they could have done. Yeah, you could almost portray him the way they do the adults in um, <laughs> like Peanuts. <laughs> or, or like Muppet Babies. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like where it's just kind of, they're sort of glimpsed, but you never have any idea what they actually look like. Yeah. Um. What do you picture, how do you picture Chef in your head? I asked you what you figured uh, Morn's voice sounds like. Is Chef like in your head? Is it Jonathan Frakes now? 
Yes, it's 100% yeah. Jonathan Frakes. It's um, Thomas Riker somehow went back in time and occupied that role. Maybe that explains why uh, he never emerged from the prison camps on Cardassia. Wait a second. If we're pitching episodes with these characters, is that the story of Thomas Riker escaping the prison camps, you know, for the McKee people, and then time traveling back and serving on the uh, NX-01 as the chef? I just like how Will Riker was such a narcissist in that situation that he never questioned why Chef looked exactly like him <laughs> when he went into the These Are the Voyages holographic program. <laughs> no kidding. Classic Riker. Um, <laughs> we just needed the one scene of a character being like, oh, Chef made me some amazing phaser art this morning. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, <laughs> Chef's playing some even better jazz music uh, than usual. Yeah. <laughs> Back in that kitchen. <laughs> do you think you could do an episode about Chef on Enterprise, though? Well, d again, we, we run into that Morn issue. If you have Morn speak once, does it kind of ruin the mystique of Chef if you actually picture Chef? Or is that... I think it's actually kind of fun if you get to see him once and then you never see him again, though. I'll make that argument. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, or maybe they should... I don't know. Like Maybe they should have built up a little more and then shown Chef in the final episode. Well, they did. Well, I mean, we saw Riker <laughs> as chef, but yeah. maybe we should have seen the actual chef. You know, I think the episode could have been improved quite a bit if it was chef that died in that random pirate attack <laughs> rather than Trip. Let's be honest, that episode would have improved if it had just been an hour of chef making meals. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, Cam, uh, who, who's another unsung hero? Okay, so um, I have Nurse Ogawa from TNG, Alyssa Ogawa. Now, she did get an episode on, you know, in Lower Decks, that episode uh, near the end of TNG's run, where she's a, you know, a supporting character in an ensemble there. But I look at Nurse Agawa's accomplishments, they're pretty impressive. You know, experimental surgery to fix Worf's spine. She's investigating deaths and suspicions. She's a pretty, like, you know, knowledgeable, accomplished character. Why didn't we maybe flesh this character out? Like, I think you could do a lot with Nurse Ogawa on TNG. Well, it was interesting. When I was doing my Season 7 rewatch uh, just a, a few months ago, uh, they really were giving her an arc towards the end of the season in that, like, you know, she went on one date with a guy, he mm -hmm. was being, like, kind of distant, and then he proposed to her, and then she ended up pregnant, and then she um, somewhat depressingly lost the child in all good things as a result of the anomaly that was going on, like reversing like cell growth. And yes. I think, well, I think our takeaway by the end of it is that they never did account for the anomaly because of that, you know, time travel stuff. So my, my assumption is that she did go ahead and have that kid. So, but the thing is, my memories of that arc, uh, they weren't nearly as vivid. Like, there was so much more that they could have done with her. But I think an episode like Lower Decks, in which she's featured, like, more prominently than ever before, I think that's, like, kind of a, a great way in. Like, I think she showed off that she could have kind of held her own against these other storylines going on with, like, uh, 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 Jaxa, Sam LaBelle, Ben the Waiter. I think I would have been in for, like, even more, like, Alyssa Ogawa uh, adventures as well. And I think if you were to make TNG now, you would have a lot more scenes of her and Crusher talking, which was something, you know, in the TNG era. It's been an evolution of the handling of female characters and friendships on Star Trek over the course of its many years. And I think that's something they would focus on more is just the relationship between the doctor and the nurse. 
Maybe she could have been the one to talk uh, Beverly out of resigning her Starfleet commission because of a green candle. <laughs> uh, there was a few Crusher love interests that maybe Ogawa should have been stepping in on. Well, what do you think of the idea? Like, uh, the, the actress, uh, Patty uh, Yasutaki, she was the runner-up to play Keiko O'Brien. I, mm -hmm. I ultimately think that Rosalind Chow is like just an exceptional choice for her. What if their roles were reversed, though? Like, Do you think that I don't think Rosalind Chow would have taken that job, that role, because essentially it's like a character who gets like one or two words. I'm not talking lines, like would often just be like, I, I, through many of her appearances. And she, she appeared in a lot of episodes, I a should ton. say. Yeah. Yeah. But like, uh, ultimately, like, how do you think, you know, the, the character would have developed had it been somebody who, I'm just being honest, like Rosalind Chow is like a much bigger name, had a much more storied career than mm -hmm. uh, one Patty uh, Yasutaki. Yeah, like they do seem to me like, and it's so tough because like, I really only know, I think both of them mostly from their, their work on Star Trek. Um, they seem like a little bit of different personality types to cast in those roles. Um, like, I, I don't know, there's a, there's a little more of a, I think, a toughness to Rosalind Chow that I think works really well in the relationship with O'Brien that I haven't seen that with... Um, Patty Yasutaki. Yeah, with Patty Yasutaki. Like, I haven't seen that. But that's not to say she doesn't have it, just that I haven't seen it. I don't have the knowledge base for her filmography to weigh in on that. That's why I kind of think it's better served with the way it worked out, but... Maybe not for <laughs> for at least one of the actors involved who would have gotten bigger paychecks going forward. Why why did she only appear in the first two TNG movies? Like uh, like I look, I realize like it's not as if like Doctor Crusher had that much to do. But even I'm sure the actress would have just been delighted even just to be there in the background or you know get another II Captain sort of line reading. I. I don't know what's going on with a lot of those TNG movies. Yeah. Um, I mean, like Crusher has like <laughs> one scene cameos in those movies. So is it a shock <laughs> that Ogawa doesn't have a lot to do? No, but I, I really think they should have tried to find a way to work her in, even if she's silent. Um, maybe at like the wedding at the start of uh, Nemesis or something like just to show that these characters who've been around for the long haul are still around. Do you think if she makes an appearance, and I don't think she will, but if she were to make an appearance in, say, Star Trek Picard, what is she doing with her life? Is she, you know, kind of a like a nurse practitioner now? Or is she, you know, uh, you know, we saw, I think, in Future Imperfect, she was imagined as the doctor of the Enterprise. So what do you think about her ultimate uh, path through life? I think probably a doctor. Um now, would she still be serving on a ship? I think so. She always seemed very comfortable on, you know, the Enterprise, so I don't see why she would change up her life too much. It, it seemed like it was a pretty good career for her. It, it, it's funny, because thinking back on it, she would have been, what, like 40 years in Starfleet at this point? Don't you yeah. think she deserves to retire by now? Well, sure, by now. Fair enough. Okay. Okay. <laughs> but maybe <laughs> maybe when uh, Crusher departed, you know, for the past tour, maybe uh, Ogawa took over. Okay, okay. Um, yeah, Cam, you know what? Uh, I, I just brought her up. I'll go right back to her. Uh, Keiko O'Brien. Yeah. This is somebody who, okay, like in my imagination or in my uh, skewed memories, I just kind of pictured her being written as more of kind of the, the, the shrill, nagging wife. You know, there's a lot of storylines with, you know, O'Brien and Keiko fighting a lot. 
I'm doing my Deep Space Nine rewatch, and I just did not give the writers enough credit, and I did not give the actress enough credit for what Keiko really brought to the the scenes that she was in. And like I was, I said, like there's a certain gravitas that uh, one uh, Rosalind Chow has when she's portraying Keiko. I believe like she and like uh, Colin Meany have like legit chemistry. I buy them as a married couple. I don't think that happens if you don't get the right actress for the job. And it's kind of amazing to think that, you know, they get married on Next Generation and then they eventually get her to migrate over to the new show at Deep Space Nine. If the actress had not worked out, but they still wanted a O'Brien on Deep Space Nine, would they have just done the whole, um, yeah, I left my wife behind on Earth sort of deal? Or do you think they would have recast? Do you think they would have just written in a divorce? Hmm. That's an excellent question, actually. I'm trying to think of the era. I think that era, they might have recast, but they also would have really, really downplayed that part of O'Brien's life. That would be my guess. Do you think they downplayed it um, too much? You know, like, I, I guess compared with what we would get in television nowadays, I think that Keiko would have to be featured in, like, like, every other episode, you know, by this point. Whereas I think, you know, it was more like she was appearing, I think at, at most, like six or seven times a year. And at least, did you know she only appeared once in all of season seven and that was for the finale? Mm -hmm. You know, so it's just, it, it was a different era of television. But I, I really think that she was perhaps underutilized to a certain degree where they're even shipping her off to Bajor to go on like some like biology expedition. And I think there's something very invaluable to what she brings to the show that would be explored more, I think, nowadays, which is that, like, their family is very much like the nuclear family. And they would be used to examine how these effects impact a family. And we get, you know, we get bits of that, obviously, just, um, you know, with a family idea with um, Jake and um, Ben. But I think they would focus more on the relationship of that, of you know, Keiko, O'Brien, and then Molly. Um, the the thing, though, I think that they would also focus yeah, Times on... Times Orton was... Uh, Times Orphan was a hoot. <laughs> Times Orton would be a hoot, too. <laughs> that should be... I should get that tattooed on my lower back. Caveman Tyler, like, up in a tree. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, I guess it's more Wild Child Tyler than Caveman. I think I'm mixing up that in Genesis for God's sake. Right, right, right. Um, I, I got, I got what you're saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but um, I, I think there's something too about the fact that the the way the the uh, relationship was interpreted on DS9 was a very like 90s approach to that relationship, and that it was like, boy. Keiko's always just so mean to O'Brien. And like, people, do you really think O'Brien was like the world's biggest gem to live with all the time on that show? He sure doesn't I, seem like he is. Half their quarters is taken up by the Alamo, man. Yeah. I mean, if anything, I would say Keiko always felt like the backbone of the relationship. Oh, for sure. It's funny, though, because I remember Rosin Chow doing an interview saying that, you know, as soon as they brought in Kira Yoshi, she knew that her screen time would diminish just because of the logistics and expense of having a, a baby on screen. Mm. And you could tell she was kind of like bummed out by that because I, I do think she genuinely enjoyed playing that uh, character. Um, there, there are two standout episodes. Uh, I, I don't think they're particularly awesome episodes, but they are good showcases for her. And that's Equilibrium in which 
Um, it, it appears as if O'Brien and Bashir have been killed doing this, you know, uh, work for this alien race trying to eradicate a disease. And she doesn't believe that it's possible because the security footage of their death shows O'Brien drinking coffee in the afternoon. And the great gag is she is so adamant that it can't be real because of the coffee thing. And then you find out by the end of the episode that uh, O'Brien's like, oh, no, I just started drinking coffee in the afternoon like a month ago. And so it's just like, but it's just like, it was fun stuff like that. The other one that I, that I, I wanted to sh uh, highlight here is uh, the assignment in which we're introduced to the paw wraiths for the very first time. And she's taken over by the paw wraiths. And I, I know Rosin Chow said in the past, like, that was uh, the most fun she ever had playing the character. And it, like, I think, honestly, like the hero actors, they do enjoy, you know, getting to uh, play the bad guy every once in a while, too. Well, do you think... Playing Keiko on Deep Space Nine would have been a fun role to tackle. Not necessarily, because you're, you're dealing with a lot of stuff like um, religious Bajoran parents that don't want their children to learn about the wormhole. You know, like, <laughs> that might not be the, the, the material you really sink your teeth into. Oh, I thought that was the argument for why it was fun. Oh, okay, okay, yes. <laughs> No, it's like, you know, you when you're joining Star Trek, I'm sure you're like, oh boy, I'm going to use phasers or have some sci-fi adventures. And then a lot of it is very homebound drama. But another thing I'll say about Keiko, I think that would have been really interesting to delve into is that O'Brien is someone who is a veteran of, of wars. And like, you know, was there PTSD after these wars? Like, what part did Keiko yeah. play, you know, in helping him establish a normal life in the wake of all that? Like, there's a lot you could dive into with that character. Well, that's why an episode like Hard Time in which uh, he has the memories implanted into him of being imprisoned for like 40 years before like killing his cellmate slash best friend. Um, they do deal with that sort of PTSD. But, you know, that next episode, it seems as if, you know, like it's just forgotten about, you know, that, which is a Star Trek trope to a certain degree. I would have liked to have seen her like help him, you know, deal with that or, or just see through, see things through her, her lens as she is trying to, you know, raise this family, keep this family together while her spouse is just going through the, this terrible psychological trauma. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot you could do with that character. And again, it, it's a character you would explore with a fair amount of depth if you were to tackle this show nowadays. I, I'm just trying to remember, though, you are doing, uh, or you did a TNG rewatch, I think, um, relatively recently. It's been quite a long time for me. Do you remember how well they use her on TNG? I remember the wedding episode um, where, you know, she's dealing with Data a lot, but I, I don't have a lot of big memories about her role on that show. There, there's episodes like Power Play in which uh, Chief O'Brien's body is taken over by, like, this non-corporeal prisoner. And uh, there's stuff like Rascals in which uh, she turns into a child. And of course. They have that very awkward scene uh, between um, child Keiko and uh, <laughs> O'Brien. Um, there's also some fun stuff like in Disaster where, you know, Worf has to deliver Molly O'Brien. You know, I think they for I think maybe the five episodes that she appeared on on TNG they actually utilized her fairly well before she got to spring forth onto uh, Deep Space Nine um, just a, a few seasons later. Yeah, that's fair enough. And one more question for you. You have the Keiko O'Brien action figure. Um, I do, yes. Uh, listeners, Cam is not joking. I, in fact, do. Yeah. Was that released as a TNG figure or a DS9 figure? 
it's a Deep Space Nine figure, and they give her, like, kind of the horticulture sort of accessories, and for some reason, she's wearing, like, um, this black jumpsuit that looks as if it's something, like, Intendant Kira would wear. <laughs> I, I, I don't quite understand it. Um, but, hey. Wait, was, Kira, uh, was Keiko ever in the Mirror Universe? I think... I don't think so. And I, I would have loved to have seen her in the Mirror Universe. I just don't know if they could have made it work between her and Smiley, though. Sure. That w is a missed opportunity. Mirror Universe Keiko. What is her job in the Mirror Universe, Cam? She has to be, like, ruling things. Like, she's got to be, like, the most kick-ass character. Because yeah. I, don't think, I don't think people would expect that, right? Is she still, like, um, like the mother to molly o'brien does molly o'brien even exist or i don't picture smiley and keiko getting together in this universe no i don't think they're a couple but maybe you have you know a scene of them playing off of each other or something like that so maybe like you know because obviously keiko got a lot of episodes maybe we're pitching a mirror universe keiko we got a mirror universe jennifer cisco why couldn't we have had a mirror universe keiko story i know i know okay well <laughs> cam uh who's one of your unsung heroes Okay, well, I'm going to go to a character, sort of like your opening one of Morn, a character who I think adds a lot of life to the show, but hasn't necessarily been fleshed out as a full character, and that's Linus on Star Trek Discovery. Mm, okay. You know, we've okay. seen him as a, you know, science officer, analyzing spore data and things like that. We know that Jet Reno calls him Bamboo Boy for some reason, um, but mostly he's there. That, that's what I call you uh, as well. <laughs> True. Yeah, they stole that. Um, we yeah. should uh, file a copyright lawsuit against them for that. No, I actually call you Camboo Boy. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. okay. Well, um, <laughs> that's awful. <laughs> I I'm going to start calling you now, <laughs> from now on. Camboo Boy, who's okay. your next unsung hero? Next time we're on stage in Las Vegas, then I will uh, introduce myself as Camboo Boy. <laughs> Cam, will there be a next time we're on stage in Las Vegas? Uh, we'll see, we'll see. We'll uh, see, okay. <laughs> uh, I'm trying to be optimistic. But yeah, so Linus, the most we've seen him do is a lot of more comedic beats with like him, you know, sneezing on someone in the turbo lift or um, getting beamed into a uh, location awkwardly. Um, can we do more with Linus? Do we want to do more with Linus? Like make him more of an active agent rather than kind of the uh, the passive agent for sight gags. Yeah, because that's something with um, Arium early on. All through season one, you and I were like, when are we going to see more Arium? Because the visual was so strong. And I think Linus has an incredibly strong visual. Um, they've done more with him than Arium. They've actually made him someone who gets, you know, like really funny, memorable moments. But do we want to see him fleshed out as a character? I would say so. But I, look, I, I think the kinds of supporting characters they have their eye on fleshing out would be like the Detmers and Awashikins more so than the Linuses. And, and I think just the issue is, is um, I think they like playing him uh, for laughs more than anything else. I, I'm down for what you're saying. I'm wondering about the probability of that. Yeah, I, I kind of agree with you. The one thing is, too, he's our most prominent Saurian we've ever had on Star Trek. Yeah. So I would like to see just more of what a Saurian is. Like, let's delve into that culture a little bit through Linus. Why is his name Linus? I think it's just because it's funny, right? But, like, remember in Anobel for Charon? I think we briefly heard the Saurian language, and it was, like, 
not like a uh, humanoid language to any degree, though. And I wonder if Linus is like the best sort of uh, transliteration, if that's the right word, um, of whatever his Saurian name would be. Is, is that something that makes sense to you? I think that makes complete sense. I also just wonder from the creative standpoint, if they designed this character and they just thought it would be kind of cute to give him a name like Linus. Like it just seems kind of, uh, you know, it, you know, how people give like cats, like cute cats, like very like dignified names because it's funny. I feel like sure. they were kind of going the same route with Linus. Okay. Well, look, maybe you're just obsessed with peanuts uh, for some reason uh, this episode, but I'll I'll go with that. Uh, What do you want to see Linus doing next season, though? Is there kind of a particular, like, science-based storyline in which maybe it's not Burnham? Because if Burnham's captain, is Linus now the head science officer? Hmm. Good question. I mean, I guess a lot depends on what they're going to do with Saru next season. Yeah, um. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like I, I'm very, very wary of whatever they want to do with Saru's storyline because it, it makes me it, it irks me that he appears as if he's essentially getting demoted from captain, you know, moving yeah. forward. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. But I also wonder if we could see Linus as science officer in the same way like we saw Arium as first commander where they're kind of there, mm. but in job only until, I don't know, Saru comes back to take over the station or something. Well, I just have a hard time imagining them, like, cutting to Linus for a lot of exposition and, you know, scientific investigation. For some reason, I, I'm still foggy on... Um, Book can now be a navigator for the Spore Drive. Um, um yeah. D- does that mean that maybe there will be more scenes of Stamets up on the bridge as chief science officer potentially or do you think he's still going to be down in that uh spore drive you know like glass cube that he often hangs out in well book's not a member of starfleet but he can navigate yeah spore drive which is I, i think they wanted to give him like a very specific job to have on discovery otherwise he's just kind of like floating like i like we were never sure what he was doing aboard discovery in season three he was just hanging out and this gives him like a very specific role but if you're a starfleet vessel and you have someone like book who's not a starfleet member operating the spore drive wouldn't you have supervision at least like i'm not saying i'm arguing i want stamets to be standing there watching book steer the ship like that's not interesting television but just like within the logic of the universe does that make sense what do you mean uh does uh, does having book as navigator makes sense or does having a supervisor for book make sense like having someone like stamets who's obviously would assume a supervisory position of this because he's the one who knows the most about it being there kind of watching book not that again i want this to be on the show this is why i'm confused like why would both of them be down there in engineering why would they need both book and stamets in that particular section of the ship like they don't yeah, the economy of characters would be, you don't. You don't need two people to do one job. Yeah, and so that's why I'm wondering if like they're going to be pushing Stamets to the bridge more often, and we'll see, you know, Book, you know, doing the whole eyes go black sort of deal that Stamets would do all the time, especially in season one. Yeah, I mean, it's entirely possible. I mean, I would love to see Stamets on the bridge more. A- anything is possible, Cam, but what sure, do you think sure. is more, more probable? 
No, I mean, I, I, I do wonder if Book's role won't be as defined as like one job. Like, obviously, that yeah. is something he's going to do, and he'll, I'm sure, have to pinch hit doing that more than a couple times in dramatic instances. But I wonder if he's someone who has more of like a, I don't know what the word is, more of a, I guess, a diversified job on the ship where he's doing all sorts of things. He can kind of run the types of missions that maybe Starfleet members aren't comfortable doing. He can steer the ship. He can kind of do all sorts of things. He can kind of be the, uh, you know, the guy who can do all the odd jobs. He's their Neelix? Exactly. He can host briefings with Book. Yeah. It's just, I just wonder if it's going to be one of those decisions that you and I, I were wondering about right now. I, I think the deal was that it had served a plot purpose in the finale, mm -hmm. but I think it just opens the door to more complications moving forward in season four, very much like how we had Commander Nan decide to go into the future. And the, it was obviously that the writers had not realized that they wanted to make Tilly the XO by then, and so they had to awkwardly write Nan off the show halfway through the season with that whole seed vault deal you know like i wonder if it's just one of those sorts of things where the writers did not necessarily think out the implications of what's going to happen and maybe you and i are just trying to apply too much thought into something that was just meant to serve more of a plot function for a very short period of time i mean season three like ended with <laughs> saru hugging sukal on like kaminar uh is that a hook for where we're going next season that's interesting <laughs> Not, not to us. <laughs> not to us. Um, just lastly on Linus, though, like what honestly I would like to see him do on the show if he had his own episode would be something where they have to deal with Saurians in extensive detail on the show. And he can kind of, at the very least, be their introduction to that society. Like that to me would be really interesting. Well, I think he would be kind of an interesting, you know, wet behind the ears sort of character, you know, uh, in that like, He's been away from Saurian culture for a thousand years, so he would have to be learning as he goes to a certain degree as well, as we, the audience, are being introduced to them more and more. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Well, Cam, uh, I want to go over to Star Trek Voyager here. Unsung, you know, well, I don't know if it's an unsung hero so much as unsung heroes. These are the Delaney sisters, Cam, <laughs> who... I think we... you may have won for the most unlikely names to be thrown out on this episode. <laughs> um, they were talked about um, like nonstop by uh, Harry and Tom all the time. I thought these two women just must be an absolute hoot. I think we saw them for the very first time in um, season six or season seven. I I'll say this. It kind of took the mystique, uh, as we were talking about, it kind of took the mystique out of them. And I got even more confused because it looked as if they hired like these two 20-year-olds to play them, which meant like how old were the Delaney sisters when they ended up in the Maquis serving aboard that ship, right? Mm, yeah, good, good and, and the thing is, I think they were Maquis members because what are the chances two twin, identical twin sisters are both going to end up on the same assignment, which happens to be Voyager, which is flung to the other side of the galaxy, kills half the crew, and both of them make it out there alive. I think the Delaney sisters had to be Maquis members. Yeah, have we ever seen siblings serving on the same ship? I don't think of so. Of course we did. Of course. Tom and Will Riker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's not. That's a cheat, though. <laughs> um, I'm trying to. I I can't think of a single you know sibling uh match that we we've seen. No. There was the lost episode where Robert became an ensign, but yeah. Mm, yeah. 
And who knows if um, Sam Kirk had survived that attack, uh, maybe mm. he could have uh, been seconded on to uh, the 1701. And I, I would have just, I needed another excuse to see Shatner and that awesome mustache. Right, right. Now, okay, getting back to the Delaney sisters, it would have been better to play them off as like a chef character, wouldn't it? Where we never really saw them. I think it proves why that chef character was so genius in that like they were just kind of this off-screen gag. And once you saw them, it just raised even more questions. And honestly, like I'm, I'm, I don't want to disparage the actresses. I just think it, it, it's a tough role for the casting director to find identical twins who are both very charismatic actresses that can go toe-to-toe with, you know, Robert Duncan McNeil or Garrett Wong, who they are charismatic actors. Like, they do have, like, this spark to them. And so when we finally saw them on screen, here's the thing. Leading up to it, like, I just loved it whenever those two dudes made reference to, you know, oh, yeah, we're going to go ice skating with the Delaney sisters again. Like, that was Mm -hmm. always fun to me. And then when we actually did see them on screen, I was just like, huh. Well, that's not really what I expected. Like my imagination was, you know, kind of the, the much better storyteller than I think what we saw when it was like tangible. Yeah. And also in your imagination, like it's Star Trek. Are they aliens? Like, what do they look like? They could be anything. And then you see them and you're like, no, no, fair enough. <laughs> what is Delaney an alien name? It's not. It's not. But you know what I mean? Like you could do anything on Star Trek. I mean, Naomi Wildman isn't an alien name, but she's half alien. Okay. Totally true. <laughs> you got me there. Linus. Okay. What about Linus? <laughs> well, I thought I explained or ra- at least rationalized it uh, somewhat sure. decently. No. Maybe Delaney is like the, um, you know, the uh, English attempt at an alien name. Who knows? Anything. Could, it's Star Trek. Anything could happen. I think that's kind of offensive to Irish people, but okay. <laughs> no, I think Star Trek's done enough that's offensive to Irish people. <laughs> uh, actually, okay, that's true. That's Up true. the long ladder. Oh, yeah, I don't think we need to uh, talk with the Delaney's that much more. Who's next on your list? Um, This is one who's, it's someone who was a fairly prominent role in the show, but I really think there's a story waiting to be told about Admiral Forrest. Um, Much of what we saw Admiral Forrest do was pop on the view screen and be like, hey, Jonathan, you know, blah, 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 go do this or don't do that. Um, He did, you know, we actually did see him, you know, sharing screen time with the crew, but to me, I think Admiral Forrest has a story that's not being told. So much of the story of Enterprise is Archer out there, you know, cowboy in space, taming the wild frontier and what have you, you know, journeying to new worlds. What is Forrest doing at home? He's having to deal with the Vulcan situation, be very diplomatic and kind of balance um, relationships with the Vulcans and sort of this continuing exploration of space I think his job would be very stressful, and I want to have an episode about the day in the life of Admiral Forrest. I cannot blame you for, you know, bringing up Admiral Forrest as an unsung hero. My issue is, Cam, that I cannot separate him from Von Armstrong, the actor, mm. at this point. And so in my head, like, this entire spinoff episode, the the end of every act is just uh, Admiral Forrest bringing out his harmonica and just having like a harmonica off with whoever is in the room with him at this point. So what you're saying is this would rival like the inner light is one of the all-time great episodes of Star Trek. <laughs> He's playing the Katarian melody the entire time on a harmonica. Yeah. The final shot is him just like looking out into space playing the harmonica. 
<laughs> um, okay. I, I would almost make the argument that maybe he, the spin-off episode that he did get was In a Mirror Darkly Part 1. And that's mm-hmm. Mirror Universe, uh, you know, Forced. I think that just kind of proves that, you know, Prime Force totally would have been worthy of his own what-are-they-doing-back-on-Earth kind of episodes. Like, that would have been, like, a fun episode for them to do, where, you know, instead of, <laughs> instead of um, uh, Forrest zooming in with Archer, like we saw, like, every four episodes on uh, seasons one and two of Enterprise, we, we got Archer zooming in on Forrest while he was back on Earth, kind of navigating all of those kind of administrative deals that he would have obviously been doing back in the day like maybe there's some sort of incident um that enterprise gets itself into and then the whole episode is built around Forrest having to smooth things out at home with the vulcans we get saval in there we get the dynamic between those two characters i think this could have been a really fun episode is there the potential for like even kind of like shran to like you know you know, because Shran's off doing his own thing, but I, I just wonder if there's like Shran potential here because he doesn't have to always only exclusively be in contact with Archer whenever we see him on the show. Definitely not. I think you could have whatever the incident is that kicks this off. Maybe it ties into the Andorians, and so you could have Shran interacting with Forrest as well. I think there's a lot of ways to make this a very, very fun episode. Okay, so then in that case, I believe the alien uh, captain in the episode Damage from Season 3, in which Archer stole the part uh, from that alien ship and left the captain behind on the ship, stranded in the Delphic Expanse, he makes his way to uh, Forrest to complain and that actor, of course, is Casey Biggs. You've got uh, the entire Las Vegas band together, Cam, between uh, Gary Graham, uh, Casey Biggs, Von Armstrong, and Jeffrey Combs. They are doing the Enterprise Blues for a, like a so- That is the episode. It's just them up on stage for 40 minutes. Performing Batleth Baby. <laughs> yes. Cam, can you uh, sing a little Batleth Baby for me? What is it in the tune to? I can't even remember now. I just remember it's the a title. Batlith baby. She's my Batlith baby. Right, yeah. If you want to see the most awkward um YouTube video cam, uh or anybody, just go and type in Batlith baby featuring uh Mary Chifo in which I think it's Destination Star Trek over in like uh Birmingham. And she gets up on stage, you know, she's Klingon uh woman you know mm-hmm. and she has to dance to batleth baby and mm. it's you know when you go to karaoke and you forget how long a song is and then you are stuck singing bohemian rhapsody for about nine minutes and um that takes a lot out of you you and i figured out that it's actually schools out by alice cooper is like the perfect length of a song for karaoke in that it, it's done with like within two minutes um batleth baby went on for like six minutes and she just had to kind of swing her hips for like this extended period of time. It was just amazingly awkward to just watch because she she finally like she had the, the smile on Mary Chifo's face. It fades away soon enough, <laughs> and she's just oh, kind of really? like just kind of going through the motions. Like, okay, how long is this song going to last? Oh, someone uh, they obviously didn't rehearse that one in advance. I don't think they do rehearsals actually for. Uh... For their shows, that's part of the fun. Um, oh, boy, oh, oh. I bet you, I bet you, she wishes there was a rehearsal though. They do rehearse. I, I don't know if she had to rehearse a dance. I think they'd probably just ask her up on stage. But I know yeah. for a fact that those folks they do rehearse like in their hotel rooms because somebody posted a video 
um, where they're walking by a hotel room in Vegas and the door was cracked open slightly in a hotel room and it was everybody uh, who would be all the actors who would be up on stage performing during that Sunday night Rat Pack. They're all performing together in the room. That's right. I remember that now. Yeah, yeah, I guess that's just part of the shtick is to always tell the audience they didn't rehearse. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. uh, okay, well, uh, Cam, uh, after Forrest, uh, why don't I go to somebody who was featured, I think, prominently, but I still think is an unsung hero. One taken for granted by the fans, underappreciated by a lot of fans, and unfortunately, I, I think um, unfairly disliked by a lot of fans. And that is one Dr. Pulaski comes in to take over from the much-beloved Dr. Crusher in Season 2 of TNG, and immediately you introduce her as kind of this character that doesn't like androids, who doesn't like, you know, transporter beams. You're like, oh, man, she doesn't like the Star Trek universe at this point. I think that's kind of the genius of the character, like somebody who is not over the moon with everything that's going on the way that most people might be in this situation. I think Diane Mulder, like, um, acquitted herself well. I just don't know if they quite gave her all the greatest material um, during that second season. But let's just be honest, Cam. Season two writing overall, across the board, it was not good. No, there's like, how many good episodes do you think there are? Maybe two or four? three? I was, yeah, okay, two or three, you think? Yeah, like there's not much. I'm thinking like, yeah, Measure of a Man. Um, I guess you could argue Elementary Deer Data, uh, Q-Who. Um, maybe there's one more in there. But yeah, the it's the fact that you rough. can't even name it tells me everything I need to know. Is peak performance season two? That one's pretty good. Uh, it might be, but I honestly, season one and season two blurs together. Unless I'm picturing a prominent Riker episode in which he has the beard, then I know it's season two. Yeah, Otherwise, yeah. I, I don't know. It's just kind of a blur to me. I'm in the same boat. I think something that's interesting about Pulaski that we can't really say about many other characters who aren't liked is that Pulaski was very much given the traits of Bones McCoy, you know, the fear of technology, the constantly ribbing your other character. So, you know, with Bones, it was always ribbing Spock, whereas Pulaski, it's Data. And it did really not go over well with fans. And I think there might be some gender issues there with why fans were more accepting of one relationship versus the other. But going beyond that, like, is there something, is there a difference in a character, you know, kind of a curmudgeon character ribbing Spock versus ribbing Data? Um, Data has a certain innocence to him that yeah. Spock seems more like an adult, you know, somebody yeah. capable of, you know, defending himself. I can't picture Data really defending himself because he's just so oblivious to it all. Yeah, that is a bit of it because you know the whole Pinocchio concept is there right from the first episode and do you want to see someone like snarking at Pinocchio every episode it, it's kind of weird yeah I, I mean like I, I think uh, th th there are some flaws within the character but look if you gave her like a real like she look she had some episodes in which she was featured prominently if you gave her maybe a full spotlight episode centered completely on her in which it's almost like, um, you know, Geordi on the planet with Romulan, the enemy, where mm -hmm. maybe it's her coming, you know, to grips with how technology isn't as scary as it maybe needs to be. I think we could have come around at her. Maybe we would have found out that she's from the same Luddite colony as a Washington mm -hmm. is from Discovery. Possibly, possibly. Another thing I think that was very invaluable to this character was that she's in the same sort of age demographic as Picard. 
And I think that relationship could be really interesting. We got bits and pieces of it throughout the course of season two, but I think like a, a you know real exploration of their dynamic would be really interesting. Like we have that episode in season two where I think it's coming of age, is it maybe where Picard and Wesley are, have to go on a shuttlecraft? I think Picard's going to get heart surgery, but um, an episode like that where you have Picard for an extended period of time with Pulaski. I think you could do something really interesting with that. Well, speaking of Picard and Pulaski, would it not have been just fantastic in, I think it was a series premiere where, you know, Picard needed uh, a doctor he could trust. And if he was just building up and he's just like, there's only one doctor I could trust served with her aboard the Enterprise, <laughs> that redheaded great one. And it's just like, we had this great dynamic. And then you just cut to Pulaski walking onto the Picard Chateau. That would have been just a wild moment for fandom. It would have been. It would have been. I think they could have had fun with Pulaski too if they had gotten her back for like all good things or something. Oh, I never even thought about that. I I, I much prefer like the appearance of Tasha Yar. The, the timeline doesn't quite work out, but I, I know what you're saying. Like I, they, they could have had fun like somehow maybe kind of put her into the mix. Yeah, yeah, because I always felt like Pulaski really got the raw end of the deal in that lots of characters come and go on Star Trek, but they tend to kind of acknowledge them leaving, whereas Pulaski is just like, oh, she's gone, I guess, and we'll never talk about her again. It's very much the Poochie, I'm going back to my home planet. <laughs> yes. <laughs> also, um, it's a shame Argyle is not in All Good Things also very very tragic that would be amazing actually if they had one shot where it's just like cuts to argyle and engineering i think fans would have loved it it could have just been like a stock uh image of him or something like that like not even like full motion it's just it's literally like a publicity still of like argyle's frozen face just inserted in there <laughs> or they shoot the still but have the animated lips to have him talking <laughs> Like, yeah, like they used to do on, like, Conan O'Brien. Yeah, exactly like that. Okay. <laughs> well, do you have one last uh, unsung hero you want to share with us? Yeah, so we've talked about a lot of medical staff. I've got one more, and I think it's a good one to for me to close out my picks with, which is Christine Chapel on the original series. Mm. Um, when we talk about original series, people will always bring up Chekhov and, you know, Sulu, Uhura. And, like, they're all very prominent characters. They all got at least something to do, you know, in the movies that was at least of note. Uhura would usually get, like, a good scene or something. Um, Christine Chapel actually appears quite a bit on the original series. Um, she has a lot of moments, you know, with this sort of, um, this relationship she has with Spock. Um, this, uh, you know, unrequited love that she has for him. We have scenes where she's standing up to McCoy. But she always feels like someone's a little shuffled off to the side when you really think of the original series cast. Even though you could easily say Sulu's a recurring, um, he's barely in season two, but Chapel's there a lot. And so why are we not giving her more credit? Um, she's a doctor in you know some of the, um, the uh, movies from TOS, but it's also very much cameo roles. Does Chapel deserve more of a showcase? Yeah. Like, I, I even think that she had the opportunity to be utilized more in the movies, and it was just kind of a bummer they didn't quite make her as prominent as, say, Uhura or Chekhov got to be throughout the film series as well. I think she could have totally had, like, a, a spotlight episode, except the thing is, other than, like, Scotty, 
Did anyone outside the Triumvirate really get a Spotlight episode back in the original series? Not really, although you could also argue that Chekhov... Maybe Chekhov, maybe Spectre of the Gun or something. Also, uh, Way to Eden is all about his ex-girlfriend, so you do get very strong relationships there. Sulu gets pretty prominent roles in, like, Shore Leave, Um, you know, Naked Now, he gets a big showcase moment, but... Uh, you could easily, I think, um, at least within TOS the show, put Chapel up on a similar role as uh, Sulu. What do you think Chapel is doing, you know, post the Undiscovered Country? What is her trajectory? Hmm. Well, I mean, it depends how long she wants to work for, right? Because she was aging up as much as the rest of the crew were. I could see her retiring at a certain point. Um, well, you want uh, Nurse Ogawa to keep working at the same point. <laughs> That's like a century later. They're, they're going to work even later at that point. Um. Uh, okay. Yeah. You know, like uh, people are retiring later, uh, you know, just because the economy and all that. And, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> they need to work on their pension plan, that Starfleet. That's right. Um, I don't know that I need to see Nurse Chapel working at the same time period as like Bones was showing up in TNG. <laughs> <laughs> that would be tragic. Um. Yeah, but that would be great if they didn't put any, uh, like, cake that same rubber makeup on her, on the actress. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she, like, she looks uh, the same as she always did, and uh, he's just, like, this melted candle. Yeah, yeah. Do you think maybe the reason we didn't get more Chapel in the movies was, because obviously Majel Barrett plays the character. She's married to Gene Roddenberry. Gene Roddenberry kind of gets shuttled yeah. off to the side from the Trek movie franchise, especially, you know, after kind of the... um. Uh, a lot of the response to the motion picture. So I'm just wondering if they kind of were like, yeah, we're not going to be giving big roles to Chapel in Star Trek 2 through 6. I know what you're saying, and that just bums me out. Because just think about kind of the, the dynamic between her and Spock that we really kind of missed out on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, maybe that is something we would have liked to have seen pay off later down the road. Yeah. Well. All right, Cam. Um, okay, just going through... Through all of our lists here, um, who is your ultimate unsung hero? And then I'll share my ultimate unsung hero. Hmm. Of the ones I've listed, I would think, I think the one that's the most unsung really is probably Christine Chapel. Yeah. I think it's the one who deserved the most credit. Like, we can look at some of the others as, um, like, very much supporting characters who fill out their worlds. Whereas I feel like Christine Chapel was kind of on even footing, but still just regarded as someone who was not one of the heroes who deserved, you know, a credit to, uh, you know, mention opening some of these movies. Like, I think Christine Chapel deserved a equal footing with a lot of the rest of the crew. They had that core seven, and it, it just seemed as weird that she wasn't included in kind of a core eight during the film series. Well, she actually has a relationship with both Bones and Spock. Like, when you look at the other characters, the ones who did continue in, you know, prominent roles, they didn't necessarily have relationships really with anyone. Well, just a slight tangent, but had, you know, Janice Rand uh, continued as a character throughout the course of the series, would that have been a core eight? Like, I, I, I just get the sense that she was developing as part of kind of the, the TOS core players. And, and like, I think... She was even more prominent uh, than Scotty by the time she departed as like a fully fleshed out character. Yeah, I'd say so. Yeah. Hmm. 
All right, sir. Um, my choice, I, I just, I got to give it to Keiko. I just, I, I felt so bad, like, underappreciating her just in my own memories. Going back, watching uh, Deep Space Nine once more, I'm like, okay. She really was kind of the glue that held that family together. And uh, just in my own um, unconsciously misogynistic mind, I just had uh, remembered her as more shrill than she really was, where she really is somebody who has like a great screen presence and has real gravitas to her as a character. So it's just interesting that we both chose like women characters who I think like Star Trek has like a very mixed history with how they portray women. I think they've gotten like much better in the Kurtzman era um as well and then just bring them to prominence and i think yeah our, our kurtzman era picks they, they weren't necessarily like women that were unsung heroes because I, I think they've been given so much more to do as well yeah that's for sure because i noticed that when i wrote my list i was like boy there's a fair amount of female characters and like i'd also had kind of as my backups i had like amanda grayson as well you know spock's mom was another character i thought was deserving of mentions like that is something, as you said, like going forward, I don't think we will look at shows like Picard or Strange New Worlds and maybe spot these female characters who are being ignored, but very prominent in the older shows. Uh, and I, maybe I should rephrase one thing I said. I, I use the word like you know, misogyny. I, I, I wonder if it's more just unconscious bias. Maybe mm. that's like a, a better way of phrasing it. Unconscious bias on my own part. Um you know, so don't you think though, like a lot of the Keiko O'Brien dynamic has been heavily uh, colored by just the pop culture response to it, because it really does seem like a lot of that is O'Brien is kind of the one in the right, and it's always kind of joked about. Whereas, uh, that's not actually true. My problem is if you go on all the Facebook groups, there's just mm -hmm. like people just post pictures of like a lot, and I'll be honest, it's, it's a lot of women characters. They just they'll post a picture of them, and it's either don't you just hate her or it's like a sexy picture of them and they're like aren't they hot and it's it's like there, there seems to be like very little nuance and I, I realize like facebook is not like the best you know like medium for like thoughtful conversation that's why i like doing podcasting like much more but i i i know what you're saying in that like that there's kind of that pop culture perception and how reductive it can be especially when it comes to a lot of women characters mm -hmm. very true Okay, so I think on that note, our assignment is complete. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, we want to hear from you. Jump on over to the Facebook page at Facebook.com after we've just talked about Facebook. But yes, jump on, <laughs> jump on over to the Facebook page and tell us your unsung heroes. We'd love to know about them. Or tweet us, you know, at SubspacePod because that's also a worthwhile platform to send us your ideas. Or, or go to Instagram. Instagram is less toxic, even though it is owned by Facebook. Sure. Friendster. <laughs> uh, Tyler, what are we doing next time? Yeah, Ken, we are going to take a dive into some of Star Trek's, you know, most controversial, you know, kind of philosophical um, takes, you know, kind of the, the issues that I think you and I can kind of debate and whether Star Trek was, you know, being um, a little bit heavy handed at times or if it uh, could have, you know, allowed us to scratch the surface just a little bit deeper. Looking forward to this one. Okay, so you can, of course, find us on the Twitter. I'm at Cam, V is in, Vedic Barile is the ultimate unsung hero of all of Star Trek, Smith. And you can find me at Reporten, that's R-E-P-O-R-T, T is in, Times Orton, O-N. <laughs> okay, so until next time, the arena is closed. <laughs> Bad, 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 bad,
Complete.